if you got a Bible with you this morning, open up to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. We'll be looking this morning at a sermon that I entitled, Turning from Sorrow to Joy. And as you're turning in your Bibles to John chapter 16, I meant to give you one more announcement of some really good news, and that is we have a building permit. Woo! Praise the Lord. So... <clears throat> Still going to take just a couple of weeks to finalize mobilization of getting some of the building materials over here, but we've officially got our building permit. We'll be starting, Lord willing, this month. And uh, thank you again for your prayers. Thank you for your generous giving. It's exciting uh, to see what God's doing in the life of our church over here, but we're excited about that building getting addressed over there. So this morning, here we are, John chapter 16, verses 16 to 24. Again, the title that I've given this sermon is How Sorrow Becomes Joy. John chapter 16, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to my father. So they were asking, or they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby... She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me, truly, truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to open the Bible, to read the inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that this morning you would help us to understand what Jesus meant by saying in a little while, I won't see you, and then in a little while, I will see you. Help us to understand how Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection will be what takes our sorrow and turns it into joy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The great missionary named Amy Carmichael said, everywhere the perpetual endeavor of the enemy of souls is discouragement. If he can get the soul under the weather, he wins. Well, I believe that Satan does use encouragement as one of his main weapons to defeat a Christian. I mean, who among us has never been discouraged? William Carey, the father of the modern mission movement, was faithful to the call of God. And he persevered in spite of all hardships that he encountered. As one writer said, quote, he was, more, he was no more deterred by tragedies than a locomotive would be by butterflies. Nonetheless, there were times when he suffered what one biographer called sheer black depression. Charles Spurgeon, often referred to as the Prince of Preachers, was plagued by discouragement and depression, so much so that he tendered his resignation 32 times in 39 years. The saintly A.W. Tozer, whose books still provide inspiration and benefit to the body of Christ, was not beyond discouragement. Erwin Lutzer, who knew him personally, said, quote, this man who knew God so intimately had days when he was so discouraged he felt he could not continue as a minister. A man who instructed thousands in the deep things of God often felt that he was a miserable failure. Yes, we have all been discouraged. 
It may be that there is a discouraged soul here in our body this morning in this place today. Your heart may be filled with sorrow. You might be completely bogged down with the worries of this life. You may be even facing a painful truth or reality that there is just no way out of. How exactly are you processing it all? How can God help you turn your mourning into dancing again? How can it be true for you that the weeping tarry through the night, that joy comes in the morning? How can you really believe Psalm 126 verse 5, which says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy? This morning, in our passage of John 16, we're going to see what Jesus means when he says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Let's look together at three headings that outline this text so that we can have our anguish turned into joy. The first heading, if you're taking notes, you see it there in your outline, simply says, experiencing Jesus's departure and his return. We're getting close to the end of the upper room discourse where Jesus taught his disciples so many wonderful things. He had taught them how to serve others by washing the disciples' feet. He had taught them how to love others and to continue their mission even if Jesus would be betrayed. He had taught them how to be fruitful by remaining in the vine. He had taught them how the helper would come and convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This same helper, the Holy Spirit, also known as the Spirit of Truth, would guide the believer into all truth. The Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Christ. The Holy Spirit's job is to take all that the Father has given to the Son and to declare that to us, and he does so through the Bible. These are the teachings of the Olivet Discourse that bring us up to this very text this morning where we read in verse 16 in your next blank there, if you are taking notes this morning, just simply says, Jesus says a little while. Jesus says a little while. Look at verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. In this verse, Jesus picks up on a theme that he began back in John chapter 14 when Jesus said that I will go and prepare a place for you in John 14, 2. And then he says in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And then in John 14, 19, he said, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. All I'm simply saying is for a few hours in this upper room discourse, Jesus has been talking with his disciples about how in a little while I've got to leave. And then in a little while longer, I'm coming back. And the disciples here in chapter 16 are still trying to really make sense of exactly what is it that Jesus is saying. Jesus has been saying that in a little while, you won't see me. And then in a little while, you will see me. What is Jesus saying? Well, I can tell you what he's not saying. He's not telling his disciples that he wants to play a game of hide and seek with them. He's not suggesting that they go play laser tag or paintball, right? He's not hiding and coming back, hiding and coming back. He's just simply communicating that he's going away and then he's coming back. What does Jesus mean when he says a little while? Well, earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the same phrase, a little while, to refer to the remaining time before his departure, so anytime he talks about the fact that he's going to have to go to the Father or go to the cross, he says, hey, in a little while, I'm going to go to my death or go to my resurrection or go back to be with the Father. So a little while is describing the time remaining until his departure. In John 7, verse 33, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. This, will probably, this statement of John 7, 33 was probably one to two years out from his departure. And then again, we read about Jesus saying the same thing in John 12, 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. This could be months to weeks away from Jesus's departure. And then as we've already seen in John 14, 19, Jesus said a little while and the world will see me no more. Now we're about 12 hours away. So he says a little while I'll be leaving, years away, 
He says it months away. Now he's saying it just a few hours away that a little while I'll be leaving. What is Jesus saying? The big picture is I am not going to be here on earth, as you know me, during my three-year ministry. I'm not going to be here forever. In fact, Jesus is saying to his disciples on that last night, I'm leaving soon. Jesus has been trying to prepare his disciples for his departure. And this was never intended to be a surprise or to be a shock. Jesus knew exactly where his path led and where his mission led, and now he knows that his time has come. And so Jesus is saying, I am only with you for a set amount of time, then I am going back to the Father. And so in essence, Jesus is saying, make the most of this last night. Make the most of these last moments. Listen carefully to what I'm teaching you disciples. Listen very carefully because I'm about to die and I'll be raised from the dead and I'll come back for a little while, but I am going to the Father and you'll be on your own. So you better listen up to what it is that I'm saying because in a little while you will see me no longer. He's talking about the cross and then in a little while you will see me. I believe that he's talking about there the resurrection. Not only is Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure, but he is preparing them for his resurrection. Jesus will leave. In a little while, I'll leave, but in a little while, I'll come back. He will depart, but he will present himself to his disciples again. And so I believe, again, that Jesus is talking about the cross, that he will die and his body will be buried for three days and three nights, and they will not see Jesus. And then as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus will be raised from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, Paul says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Peter teaches the same thing in 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So is a little while, Jesus will be crucified, and then in a little while, he will be resurrected from the dead. And when he was resurrected from the dead, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now, the disciples were trying to understand this. They didn't fully understand what does he mean by a little while, I will not be with you, a little while, I'll be with you. If you're tired of hearing me repeat that same thing over and over, that's what we read in verse 16, 17, 18, 19. They are having a big-time discussion about this whole conversation. So let's look at our next blank where the disciples question a little while. They question a little while, verses 17 and 18. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, in a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to my Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Now keep in mind that the disciples do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling with them. Them. This means the disciples do not have the teacher, the Holy Spirit, the helper explaining to them, enlighten their minds to really understand fully what it is Jesus is saying. Not only that, but the disciples don't have a completed canon of the New Testament scripture to paint clearly the whole picture from beginning to end. All they have is the present, and they have what Christ has been saying to them up to this point. And while it may seem a little clearer to us today, it was not clear to the disciples in that setting. And it was not uncommon for the disciples to not fully understand what Jesus was talking about. Like in John 14, verses 3 through 5, Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also, and you may know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So in other words, Jesus is accustomed to teaching his disciples and then for, for them to say, I don't understand. I don't know what you're talking about. I know you told me, but I don't understand. It sounds like sometimes maybe one of your children, you teach them something, I don't understand. You're like, how can you not understand? I've said it 15 times. You need to be more patient like Jesus right? All of us need to be more patient like Jesus, but this is just what was happening in his ministry here on earth. And in verses 17 and 18, the disciples have two specific questions. Look at verse 17. They have two questions. First, they are trying to reconcile how Jesus says 
that we won't see him and then we will see him and at the same time that I'm going to the Father. So the first question they have is, how can he say, we're not going to see you and then we will see you? How does that reconcile with the fact that you're also going to the Father? They want to understand that. And then the second question that they have is, what in the world does Jesus mean by a little while? In other words, when will this take place? He's been telling us a little while for years. Is he saying something different in this context than he did a couple of years ago? We don't quite fully understand it. And you know what? I'm going to say, that's okay. Sometimes you are not going to understand everything. Sometimes as a Christian, you're going to have questions from God. You're going to have questions about the Bible. Even if you have the full canon of Scripture and you know the inspired Word of God, you know that it's inerrant, you know that it's infallible, you know that it's sufficient for all you need for life and godliness, sometimes you still will have questions. And I'm saying it's okay. It's all right. Even though we have the Holy Spirit who will guide us into all truth, we will still have questions. And I think that's actually a beautiful thing. I mean, how many of you that are teachers, love that student in your class who says, like, I already know it. I don't have any questions. I know it all. You like that student? How many of you like the student who's like, hey, help me understand. I love what you're teaching right now, but I don't fully understand what you're saying. I'm trying to put it together. Now, when you ask that to a teacher, that teacher becomes alive. Let me explain that to you. I want you to get it. I want you to get it. And Jesus wants them to get it, but he's not chastising his disciples. He's not upset at them. It's okay for us to understand that even though truth is revealed in God's word, our life should be built around mining out that truth and that wisdom out of God's word. It's a beautiful pursuit. It's a holy quest that we're constantly digging for more information so we can better understand the word of God. Isn't that what Proverbs is all about? Turn with me quickly, if you will, to Proverbs chapter 2 just to honor this idea that it's good for us to mine out truth and it's good for us to dig into what did Jesus mean by what he said and what does this scripture mean and how do I gain that kind of wisdom? Well, Solomon says to his son in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. You start to see what's happening. This is mounting. Solomon is saying, yeah, it's all in the word, but you got to treasure it. And you've got to be attentive to the word of God. You've got to incline your heart towards the word of God. You've got to raise your voice and call out for God to help you with understanding. Verse 4, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures. I mean, how would you seek silver and treasure? I mean, you're looking, every, you're upturning everything. You're looking all over the house. You're digging all through the yard. You've got to find that treasure. That's what a treasure hunt's all about. I will not stop until I find the treasure. And the Bible says that's what the word of God is like. It's a treasure. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit. Yes, you, we have a great teacher in Christ and in the Holy Spirit, but you still have to dig in and as you dig in, and as he reveals more of himself to you through his word, you will understand, Proverbs 2.5, you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. I mean, I love the fact we're actually going to find it. So it's kind of like this unusual concept of we're going to constantly search, but we're always finding, and yet we're going to search more, and we're going to find more. And this is what's going on with the disciples, back to John chapter 16. They're digging in, they're asking questions in their heart, they're trying to understand. In one sense, God's word is revealed to his children, and in another sense, we are to spend a lifetime growing in the knowledge of the truth. And so these disciples have these two questions, how can he be gone in a little while and come back, at the same time go to the Father and then when does this happen? When is a little while? So your next blank says, Jesus knows what they want to ask him. Verse 19, he knows what they want to ask him. Again, verse 19 says, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, in a little while and you will see me. Jesus knew exactly what the disciples were talking about. And Jesus knew their question before they could even ask it. That's just how Jesus is. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were talking about. He knew the question that they wanted the answer to. 
This is seen again throughout the Gospel of John, even in John 2, 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Isn't it so comforting to be reminded this morning that Jesus knows all things He knows what the disciples want to ask. He knows what you want to ask before you can ever even ask it. And I love how Jesus takes the initiative here in this verse, and he approaches the subject that the disciples are discussing with much love and much grace. And Jesus was able to read the disciples' minds. And I'm saying that's a comforting thing. I mean, if you're hiding something from God, it's not necessarily comforting to know that he knows all things. But if you're a full open book before God, say, God, I I sin, please forgive me. I'm yours. I want to walk blameless before you. You know my thoughts. You know my deeds. You know my actions. I need your help. And I need answers in my life of how to, to walk in accordance with the way that would bring you the most glory. And Jesus is reading his disciples' minds. And I'm saying that's a comforting thing. I don't know about you, but that like encourages me a lot to know that he knows exactly what they're thinking about. And the reason that Jesus knows is because Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. He has all the attributes of the Godhead, including omniscience. And we see that again throughout his lifetime, even here in John 1, 48. Jesus said to Nathanael, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, John 4. He said to the woman of Samaria at the well, You are right in saying, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Looking at the conversation between Jesus and the man by the pool of Bethesda in John 5, 6, when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. And he said to him, Do you want to be healed? In John 6, verse 64, Jesus said to the Pharisees, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning whose those were who did not believe and who it is who would betray him. And all of these accounts again and again and again in the Gospel of John just continue to remind us of the omniscience of Christ. He knows all things. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about everybody. He knows those who, those who would be his and those who would not be his. He knew what they were thinking even before they had words in their mouth. What does this remind us of? Probably Psalm 139. Why don't you look there with me just again to see the characterization of this kind of omniscience that Jesus possesses as being the Son of God. Uh, Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4 says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. What a beautiful psalm to think about the knowledge of God. Jesus knows you through and through. He knows your hurt, and he knows your need, and he knows your difficulty, and he knows what your dreams are and what you want to do with your life. He knows what you want to say even before you say it. I hope that you're comforted by that simple yet profound truth this morning that Jesus approaches these disciples and said, hey, this is what what y'all are talking about? And then he's kind of inferring, like, if that's what you're talking about, you have those questions, that's great, because I'm about to answer those questions. And so that moves us into our next heading here, number two, experiencing sorrow turning into joy. Your next blank says just that, your sorrow will turn into joy. Verse 20, verse 20, after Jesus says, is this what you're talking about? Is this what you're asking? Then he says in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, Jesus does what he so often does. He answers their question, but not necessarily directly. He answers it by teaching them more information 
them, by them understanding the extra information that he's not going to give them, that they'll have a clarity to what their questions are. This is sometimes his style of teaching. It's not always a direct answer for a direct question, but a deeper quest into more truth so that you can have a more broad understanding of the entire topic. And so Jesus answers this question about a little while, but he doesn't necessarily do it directly. Jesus instead gives this honest truth when he says, truly, truly, he's saying, listen up. I have something important to say, and then he tells them, you will weep and lament. So Jesus is saying, hey, you will shed tears. They would cry. And not only that, that word lament means that they would grieve, that they would mourn. According to one lexicon, to lament means to weep or cry, especially in mourning for the dead oftentimes used to talk about how Jews would respond to somebody's death. There would be this deep mourning or this weeping, this lamenting. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is saying to the disciples, you will weep and you will lament over his death. Again, there's nothing else that it could be referring to other than they will weep and lament because in a little while, Jesus will not be with them. And the only way that he will not be with them is that he will go to his death. And while he's there, this is going to happen in a little while. At this point, we know it's just a, the crucifixion is just a few hours away. So he's getting them ready, getting them ready, getting them ready. But while the disciples are mourning at the loss of Jesus, notice what he says in verse 20, while you're lamenting, the world will rejoice. The disciples would be mourning, but the world would be rejoicing. There is nothing more wicked than to rejoice over someone's death. When we got the news that Kobe Bryant died this last week, I don't think anybody was rejoicing. Death is a time of mourning, and it's a time of sadness, and that's an appropriate response the disciples would have. But notice how wicked the world's response to the same event of the crucifixion would be they would be rejoicing. We should be paying honor to the dead and giving our respects, but not these unbelieving Jews. They had been plotting for some time to have Jesus killed. They had already had several failed attempts. So the world here, probably a reference to the Pharisees, the religious people, since they're unbelievers, would rejoice when they finally succeeded in killing Jesus. And little did they know that the death of Jesus would actually embolden Christ's followers. The death of Jesus would actually lead to the expansion of the church. The disciples mourned his death. They were even a little afraid and unsure of exactly what to do next. And then we are told that on the first day of the week that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb while it was still dark and they found the stone had been rolled away. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen as he said, come see the place where he lay. And when the disciples found out Peter and John ran to the tomb and they saw that it was empty and they believed. And in that very moment, their sorrow turned to joy. You see, the turning of sorrow to joy happens first and foremost when you see and understand the gospel. When you see and understand the sorrow of Christ's death and the joy of his resurrection. All sorrow could be seen in some way in the sin that caused Jesus to die. And all joy stems in some way from the fact that he's been resurrected. No matter what sorrow you're facing today, it's a result of the fall. Whether it's sin or a physical infirmity, it entered this world through sin, and that's what caused the death of Jesus Christ. And in the same way that all sorrow enters this world through sin, which required Jesus to die on the cross, all joy comes through the resurrection. My friends, that's actually good news. Because some of us think, well, there's no way my sorrow can be healed because we have a pity party about our own life and our own difficulty. And I don't mean to, to uh, be unkind to the stresses and trials of life, but I'm just saying that whatever trial you're going through in some way is a result of the fall. And the only way that you can get through that sorrow is in some way to look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is where we see it in the scripture, and this applies to all life. Listen to me. The only way for your sorrow to turn into joy is by looking to Jesus. It's probably not going to happen by taking medication or going on a vacation. 
Sorrow turns to joy by looking to Christ to help transform your thinking. Now, again, you've heard me talk about this before. I'm a nice guy. I really am. You're on medication. That's fine. If you want to go on a vacation, take me with you. <laughs> but I'm just saying that medication and vacations don't change the heart. Jesus Christ changes the heart. And the only way for your sorrow ultimately to be fixed is by looking to Jesus Christ. It's not by looking at your circumstances. It's not by looking at your health. It's not by looking at your situation. It's by looking to Jesus Christ. You must come to Christ. And some people that we counsel say, but I've tried that and it just doesn't work. To which I say, try again. Because there's no other way. It's not like as a counselor I would say, oh, you've tried Jesus and it didn't work? Well, here, why don't you do these four things? Are you kidding me? Unless these four things are realize who I am in Christ, realize I've been forgiven, I deserve hell, he's given me heaven, and I have a wonderful life in Jesus. Like, we have to realize that we've got to move and transform. We have to be transformed. I mean, part of what we're saying here is that most of the commentaries make a really big deal about the point that they didn't exchange their sorrow for joy, but rather their sorrow was transformed into joy. Let me explain. It's not about exchanging your sorrow for joy. It's transforming your sorrow to joy. To exchange your sorrow for joy would be like giving a crying child a piece of candy to make them happy. That's not transformation. That's an exchange. To exchange your sorrow for joy is not necessarily getting rid of the sorrow. So the goal is not to exchange your sorrow so much as it is to transform your sorrow. In fact, this word for sorrow turning into joy, the word turning there, is the word in the original language, genomai. Genomai is a verb of being. It means, quote, to come into existence. It means, quote, to be made or created. It means to become. You see, Jesus doesn't just exchange your sorrow for joy. He transforms your sorrow into joy. The very thing that made you sorrowful about your life and about whatever you're going through becomes the very thing that you find your joy in. Because of the resurrection, your mourning can be turned into rejoicing. Your lament can be turned into joy. Your trial can be turned into a triumph when you believe in the resurrection. This is why we read in the Bible, if you look at James 1, 2 through 4, you know this text well, but it says, count, <clears throat> excuse me, count it all joy. You're going through a trial, count it. All joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God brings the trial. He brings the answer to the trial, which is finding your joy in Christ in a way that you can now have power and energy to, to, uh, to endure through the trial. It's the same thing in Romans 5, 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. Now again, this doesn't mean that you won't experience difficulties and trials. And genuine sorrow does exist, as does uh, authentic sadness, but it does mean that you don't have to stay there. And even if your circumstances never change, there is joy in the resurrection. There is joy in having your character perfected. There is a steadfastness growing in your, in your life as your faith is maturing. There is the hope that you have in God and in his promises. And so this means that right now, if you're in a broken relationship with another person, then what you need to do is say, you know what, i got to look to the cross. i got to ask God to give me joy in the midst of this very painful relationship I'm in. And you know what, maybe the problem's me. 
Maybe sin has entered into my heart, and if I can just start with me repenting of my sin, asking God to forgive me, and making sure that within my own ability, as far as it depends on me, I'm at peace with all men. This means that if you're facing an ongoing illness, that you're believing that God is teaching you how you can long for heaven even more. This means that if you're stuck in a debilitating sin, that you can be delivered because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Whatever your sorrow is, I'm going to say that the answer is the resurrection. It's because of Jesus. If it's not, then why live? Why be a Christian? If he's not powerful enough to help you in the moment of that trial, why are you a born-again Christian? I'm a born-again Christian, number one, because he saves my soul from hell. And number two, he gives me joy in all of life every day can be a joy-filled day. Every day we can have the joy, have our, our, our anguish turned into joy. And then Jesus, he just gives this masterful illustration to help us see it a little bit more clearly. Verse 21, your next blank says, your anguish will turn into joy. Your anguish will turn into joy. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she, is, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into this world. Now, if you're here this morning and you have given birth, you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. Women, it's okay. You can say amen. You know exactly what he's talking about. If you're here this morning and your wife has given birth to a child and you were in the room, you know exactly what we're talking about. If you were in that room and your wife chose not to get an epidural, you definitely know what we're talking about. I'm talking about sheer pain. I don't mean to scare the children. Cover your ears, please. Children, cover your ears. So I'm just saying, like, without an epidural, my goodness. My wife and I had the joy, okay, just my wife, had the joy of delivering five children, and with one of our children, she chose not to have an epidural, and I thought she was crazy. <laughs> She's not crazy. She's a very smart lady, but it was completely, so with this one child, no epidural, I mean, that was an experience I'll never forget. <laughs> with the other kids, I slept right through it. <laughs> <laughs> Just call me when the baby's here. Babe. It's a completely different experience, but you understand what's being said here is that in delivery, there is such difficulty. I mean, Jesus says that there's sorrow that actually comes upon the mom as she starts to go into labor because she realizes a little bit of anxiety, sorrow, anguish, however you want to think of it, because that hours come. But then what happens? That very thing, that little life, beautiful life, right? That very person in the womb that's causing great pain, an incredible anguish as soon as, according to Jesus, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. What a beautiful, masterful illustration that as soon as that baby's born, I don't care if you had an epidural or not, you're not thinking about it in that moment, right? Just a couple minutes later, you think about it again. But in that moment, you're like, thank you for the baby. The doctor takes the baby. It's a boy. It's a girl. Gives it to the mom. And there's tears and there's joy. And it's like, it's all worth it. Every single trial you've ever had with that pregnancy, it's all worth it. Why? Because human life is invaluable. Listen to me. Your faith is invaluable. And whatever trial God brings into your life, it's all worth it. You might have never wished it upon yourself. You may never ask for it. But if you're maturing in Christ the way he wants you to, then you realize that, you know what, this is exactly what God has brought, and it's for his glory. And I'm so thankful that you brought this into my life to show me more of your power and more of your joy. I mean, I just can't get over the fact that Johnny Erickson Tata has said on a number of occasions that if she could go back and redo her life, she would not change a thing. I'm like, are you kidding me? 17 years old, diving in a, in a river, being paralyzed from the neck down. You wouldn't change that? And she says, no. She's asked, well, why wouldn't you change that? Because of the depth to which I've come to know my Lord and Savior, the depth of God's wisdom, the beauty of his grace. Every time I think, I just think, I just don't know if I could say that. And yet it's what God wants us to understand, that there's such beauty even in the cross, right? What 
Christian, what disciple would have wanted Jesus to go to the cross? Of course they have sorrow. They're very disturbed by the fact that Jesus is going to go to the cross, and yet he's telling them, hey, in a little while I'm coming back, and your sorrow will be turned into joy. It's just a reminder that these truths are throughout the Bible. We've been reading a little bit through Genesis. We're in Exodus now with our family, but we're reading about Joseph being sold into slavery, and he, he, you know, he didn't really do anything wrong, and then he stays in jail, and then they forget about him, and then finally, you know, he gets out of jail after he interprets the dreams, and his brothers come. You know how the story goes, and at the end of Genesis uh, the chapter 50, the last chapter, verse 20, when he finally meets the brothers, they talk about what had happened. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for for good. What a beautiful ending to that story that this is a horrible thing and yet God brought all this about. I mean, this is Romans 8:28 that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And you might be tempted to ask, well, what is the good exactly? The good is is that, that trial is supposed to make you more like Jesus. That's why Romans 8:29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his son. So he's saying, hey, all things work together for good. What does that look like? You're supposed to be conformed into the image of Christ. As you go through everything that you go through in your life, each experience you have, each trial that you go through, each blessing that you go through, everything that you go through, the good and the bad, is going to make you be more conformed into the image of Christ. What a beautiful thing. God wants to make you more like Jesus. And so God ordains everything that happens in your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to conform you into the image of his son. And when you receive blessings from God, you should give him thanks. And when you receive difficulties and trials from God, again, you should give him thanks. Because the end result is that in all of this, there is a faith that is being refined, and there's a faith that's being renewed, and there's a faith that's learning to rejoice in God and in his love for you no matter what you're facing. I mean, there's no joy like the joy of you knowing that God is at work in your heart and in your life and filling you with his truth and with his love that you sense oftentimes more deeply in the middle of a trial. The problem is when we're not in trials, we start coasting. And we're not in trials, we forget about our great need for God. But in the trial, we are on our knees and we're praying day and night, God, I need you in this moment to help me through. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. And may that joy primarily be focused on Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And then we read in verse 22 that your joy can never be taken from you. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I love this. It's a reminder that you are going to sorrow, but you will, through the resurrection, have joy in all the sadness uh, that occurs at Jesus' death, all the frustration around the false trials that would accuse Jesus, all the pain of witnessing Jesus being scourged, all the heartache of the fact that Jesus' beard was plucked out and a crown of thorns was placed on his brow and his hands and his uh, feet were pierced as he was nailed to the cross. The pain of the reality that Jesus breathed his last when he said, it is finished. All of that is very painful. And yet three days later, Jesus was resurrected from the grave and he was made alive and he revealed himself again to over 500 witnesses. What a joy this must have brought into the hearts of everyone who saw him. And so Jesus is telling his disciples that they will rejoice from their hearts, and this rejoicing will not be superficial. This rejoicing will not be based on something trite. This rejoicing will be based on an eternal truth that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And this joy, this joy, can never be taken from you because this is the joy of the gospel. This is the joy that's not based on people, and it's not based on possessions, and it's not based on circumstances, and it's not based on the passions of the flesh. This is a joy that's based on Jesus Christ. And when our joy is based on him, it's a permanent joy that Jesus is talking about here, and he seals it in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He gives us the fruit of joy, Galatians 5.22. He tells us that we have 
peace and joy in the Holy Spirit in Romans 14, 17. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, he tells us that, again, we receive the word in much affliction, but we also have the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what we're talking about. You may be today in much affliction, but like in Thessalonians, through that affliction, you can experience the joy of the Holy Spirit. I believe that what Jesus is teaching is partly an all-encompassing concept that whatever your greatest struggle is today, that can lead you to your greatest joy. That whatever is the cause of your darkest depression can be what leads you to depend on Jesus and delight in him. And if you are in sorrow at this moment, let me encourage you to look to Jesus, study his word, see his example, receive his power, rejoice in the resurrection, walk in faith and dependence, and you will be filled with a joy that no one can take from you. Well, we've looked at experiencing Jesus's departure and his return. We've looked at experiencing our sorrow turning into joy because of the resurrection. And the last heading I want you to see here is experiencing the joy of prayer after the resurrection. Your first blank says, we ask in Jesus' name, verse 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me, truly, truly I say to you, whatever you ask of me, or whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So he's saying here, I'll be gone in a little while, but then I'll be back. And then he's telling them, in that day, you will ask nothing of me, but you will ask the Father in my name. I believe that Jesus is now and again, the commentaries, it's very laborious. They're all over the place in explaining so much of this. So the timeline might be slightly different if you study this out, because trust me, it is a lot of, of uh, thoughts. But I think that here he's talking about now that when the Holy Spirit comes, you're no longer going to ask Jesus directly because he's now gone for good. You can now ask God through the Son. And in the power of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, you are now able to ask in Christ's name. I mean, think about it. While Jesus was here on earth, you would just ask him directly. But now that Jesus is gone, you ask the Father through his name. And so in verse 23, when he says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. He's trying to continue to encourage the disciples that while they wanted to ask their questions, but they weren't asking them because they were a little timid to talk to Jesus, he said, hey, don't be like that. Once I go, you just ask. You ask the Father. And you ask him in my name. And as you ask him in my name, he commands us that we would even be that way. In fact, your next blank says, when we ask in Jesus' name, he makes our joy full. He makes our joy full. Listen at verse 24. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name, and you will receive that your joy will be made full. I think what he's saying is, up to this point, you've not asked in my name because you just asked me directly. Now I want you to ask the Father. You ask the Father in my name. It's not a magic statement, if you just say in Jesus' name, it's yours, right? But ask by faith, according to the will of God, in a God-glorifying way, and that if it's in agreement with God's will, then he will answer your prayer. Certainly, Jesus doesn't mean that every single thing that you've ever prayed will be answered immediately just in the way you want it to. But when we ask by faith, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be shy. You're not bothering God when you ask him. You're not bothering him. In fact, we should be delight. He delights in our petition. He delights in that. He's honored when we come to him and we ask by faith in his name what it is that we need. And what we need is him to be glorified in our life and in our situation more than we just need an evacuation. Right? That's what we tend to pray for. God, get me out of here. And that what we're starting to see is like, actually, it's while I'm here, remember the exchange? It's not about exchange. It's about transformation. It's about you realizing like, oh, God, thank you for the trial. Transform my heart and my thinking. Turn it into joy. Because if Christ defeated, um, defeated Satan on the cross and has been resurrected, then you can defeat whatever enemy and foe that you have. Because according to Jesus, when you come to him and when you pray by his name, that's part of how he makes your joy full. You know, sometimes we don't think about prayer as being joyful. We think about it being laborious. It's a discipline. Have you prayed today? Children, have you prayed? How long did you pray? Well, I hope you're not like that. I say, hey, kids, you want some joy? Come here, let me show you where it's at. Let's get on our knees. Let's ask the God of heaven 
to help us glorify him in this trial. And as we're depending upon him and we're laying our requests before him and we're trusting in him, he begins to fill us with surety and dependence and confidence in him. And as we have confidence in him, all of a sudden the Bible says our joy is made full. I mean, the, the only other place that he says that when we looked at a few months ago is when you obey him. When you obey him fully, your joy is made full, John 15, 11. And when you pray in Jesus' name, your joy is made full. You want, so, you want to turn your sorrow into joy? It's about obeying him and praying to him. It's as simple as that. Well, Adam, why don't you just tell us that at the beginning of the sermon? We could be done. Said you went off on your little thing about a little while, a little of this, a little of that. Look, you obey him, you pray to him, he will take that sorrow in your heart and turn it into joy. If you're here today and you're sad, let me encourage you to pray. You're here today and you're anxious, let me encourage you to pray. If you're worried today, then pray. If you need wisdom today, then seek it in God's word and listen to the Holy Spirit guiding you into all of truth, which is the Bible. And whatever you ask of the Father in Jesus' name, he will give to you. So this morning, may your joy come to you as you work through your sorrow to the place that God wants you to be. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity just to be challenged by that simple principle that you want to turn our sorrow into joy. We see it at the cross. If it works there, we're trusting it works in every area of our lives. God, I know that some of us have been facing various sorrows, maybe for a long time, and maybe rightly so. Terminal illness, the loss of a loved one, abuse, there's so many painful things in this world that are just seemingly uh, bad. And it seems impossible for us to somehow turn that sorrow into joy. And yet, God, this morning we're asking for a fresh view of what it means that we would be able to rejoice in the midst of our suffering and that we would somehow see how that very painful thing that we're thinking about in this moment, if we would see it through the lens of Scripture and see it through the good and gracious hand of God, and we would see it through the, the, the incredible providence and power of you orchestrating all things to conform us into the image of your Son, I pray that you would just bring that joy. Father, right now I pray that for all of us who are hurting about any particular thing or situation in our life, that we would be challenged and encouraged by what we've read today, and that we would consider how your power could work in that situation to transform our sorrow into joy. Help us today to walk by faith, to look to the resurrection as our true source of true joy. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.